Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller, and today I'm interviewing Razib Khan. Uh, Razib, um, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, my name is Razib Khan. Um, I do a variety of things. Basically, I'm a geneticist. Currently, I am working for a canine genomics company called Embark, finishing my PhD, um, working on domestication and evolutionary genomics at UC Davis, as well as consulting for various genetics genomic and genetics firms, and contributing to a blog and having a Twitter feed. I think that hits most of the salient points. Yes, I've, I've been following you on Twitter. I've been following your blog writings for quite a while, so that's why I very much like to interview, wanted to interview you. So uh, let me ask, I, I, I know this isn't your specialty, but I'm very interested in, in the future of, of human genetic engineering and like what, what the potential is to raise uh, the intelligence of future generations. Do you think it's going to be possible in the next 20 years that we'll be able to significantly raise human intelligence? I think, yes, it's possible. I'm not sure if it's probable. Uh, there's several dependencies in that, you know, in that proposition, right? Uh, so, like, one of them is the genetics aspect. Um, I am confident that within the next 10 years, Actually, within the next uh, five years, um, we will understand the genomic architecture and heritability of intelligence to a substantial proportion. And that confidence is based on uh, basically work in quantitative genomics that is occurring right now, um, that is being published now or will be published in the near future. Uh, if you do the projections, we're thinking 2020. To, for us to gain a pretty good understanding of the genetics of how we get where we are. 2020, and that's, then, that's after, very close. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm, I've actually updated, um, you know, I'm basically, and I've, I've updated my probability here based on uh, new, new information that I have uh, received from researchers and also technological developments in the field of uh, genetics and uh, statistical analysis. Uh, so basically... Um, you know, uh, 2020 seems like a good mid-range estimate now. That's that that's quite amazing. That's sooner than I, I would have thought, but I don't have as access to new information as as you do. What percent of the variance of human intelligence do you think we're going to find is is due to genetics? You know, it depends. It depends on um, in the developed world. I think 50 to 70 percent of the variation within the population being due to genetic variation is plausible and likely. Um, in the less developed world or in certain environmental conditions where that's contributing more than variance, it'll be somewhat lower. All right, that, that's due to the, the idea that the sort of, the closer you are to a, a middle-class American life, the less in, environment seems to matter. Yes, yes, so. basically, well, Environment that you can control in an obvious way. Mm -hmm. So there are random things that happen in biological processes, um, in complex systems that we can't control, that we have no understanding of, and we call it environment. And then there are other things, like for example, lead exposure, that uh, we kind of, we have an understanding of what's going on, and we also call that environment. So um, if you are a middle class, the upper middle class 
person living in a developed economy, the, the primary thing you can control is actually the genetics. You cannot control the environment because the reality is we have enough to, to eat. Uh, we have enough opportunities to be intellectually enriched. Uh, it's just there's not that much shared environment. I'm sure you know this. Uh, there's not that much shared environment effect. Um, the environment effect that there is is some sort of stochastic noise. It could even be gene-gene interactions that are not well-modeled in a linear system, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, there's a lot of random stuff going on. We're not going to ever like eliminate all of that variation or understand it. The genes are what you understand it can control. Um, the environment is the noise. Now, in a non-developed world situation where there's malnutrition and social stratification and different nutrition based on that, well, obviously you uh, pretty much understand what you can do to fix that, right? So the variance there is environmental variance that we think of in a traditional way. So when you say 50 to 70%, are you saying by 2020, if you you, know, you give a bunch of people IQ tests and that are fairly accurate, and you also give these people a DNA test, you'll be able to do a, understand 50 to 70%, or be explained 50 to 70% of the variation in IQ tests? Based on uh, DNA? Within the population. So it's a little different when you're doing genomic prediction on the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so you are going to get less, you're going to get less um, bang for the buck out of individual genomic prediction. But um, to make it concrete, instead of dealing with variances and all these statistics, um, you know, and Steve Chu uh, at Michigan State has talked about this extensively. Your listeners can Google him. Um, Imagine you have some pre, you have some embryos that have been, you know, fertilized. So they're, they're fertilized embryos. You can sample those, and these are your, you know, children with someone else. Let's say you have a hundred. Well, you can make a pretty good, robust statistical guess of which one of those are probably going to be considerably above the expected value in intelligence. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean that's a concrete thing you could do with so that sort of. So okay, so a couple instead of having a kid the normal way, they create a hundred embryos. Then they can you sample the DNA of each embryo without doing any long term harm to the what would result from it? Yeah, I mean, um, so I, this isn't my field, but uh, my understanding is we're getting much better at this sort of non invasive or uh, doing minimal damage. But yes, there are ways now that you can do this sort of thing with like taking one cell or, mm -hmm. you know, um, it's doable. Uh, it's total, like this is much, much more within the realm of incremental, normal science and engineering progression. Okay. That is not a rate limiting step. So of those hundred, probably a few are going to have some genetic problem not related to intelligence, but yes. of the rest, you, you could pick, you know, one that have high IQ or uh -huh. one that has other characteristics you might like. Yeah, and, and you know, let me let me be like, um, I mean, qualitatively you're correct, but let me like be precise here sure. in case some of your listeners. I mean, I'm sure you have some nerdy listeners. <laughs> probably on the order of half of those embryos are actually going to be abnormal. So you start out with 100. Let's say you get down to 50. Those are going to be normal. Within those normals, you can look. Um, let's say you do some sort of sequencing. You can look for differences in mutational load. That's going to be on the order of a couple of dozen. Um, so you remove the, in, you, you push away the individuals that maybe like get a little more mutational load, um, from both parents and then of the remaining, um, you can look to see which individuals are enriched for alleles that have been known to increase IQ. So, um, to make it concrete for your listeners, you know, 
you have your IQ, let's just assume 50% heritability to make the math simple. Okay. Let's say you have two, two parents where the IQs are 130. That's about two standard deviations above the norm. Mm-hmm. The expected value with 50% heritability for any given offspring is 115, one standard deviation above the norm, right? Right. So that's the expected value. The standard deviation, though, of the offspring is still going to be on the order of one. It's a little less, more like two-thirds to three-fourths. But what I'm getting at there is siblings vary a fair amount in intelligence, and a substantial portion of that is probably the genetic variation across siblings. Okay, mm-hmm. So siblings are expected to be 50% related, but really the standard deviation in, in relatedness is, is about 3%. Um, it's not unheard of to have siblings that are only 40% related as opposed to 50, or they're 60% as opposed to 50. So this is obviously going to have an effect. And so as you're sampling across these embryos, um, you know the one, way I like to say it is you could you could pick the best combination of you and your spouse. Right. Okay. Right. I mean, might be explosive to some, but I think I think you're pretty chill with thinking of it that way. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and how much do you think you could? Uh, on average, how much smarter would the child be if you went to optimize intelligence? You know, I mean, I think it would be reasonable to. It would definitely. I mean, being very conservative, I wouldn't be surprised if just embryo selection. Assuming on the order of a hundred, like really you could do, you can do many different things, but like, let's see on the order of hundred, like half a standard deviation to a standard deviation seems relatively reasonable to me. Now that might not seem like, you know, like mm-hmm. seven, eight to like 15 points might not seem like that much to a lot of people. But the reality is, you know, it can make a difference between you being one out of 100 to one out of 500, one out of thousand, you know? So it can make a big difference. Um, you know, if your IQ is, let's say you're in the low 100s, both parents, and they want to invest in, you know, better future for their offspring, like, you know, pushing it up a standard deviation, that makes, like, very reasonable college graduate all of a sudden. Like, yes. It's not, you know, so um, definitely think it would be a good investment if you want to think about it economically. And it probably, I mean, significantly lowers the odds of getting a kid with an IQ below 100, I would imagine. that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one. I mean, you know, we're not even talking about the other, uh, the other side of the equation where parents are disappointed yes. um, in, in their offspring. But, yeah, like, hopefully that would definitely mitigate that. Even if, like, even if you know, th- this is only, like, somewhat effective, you can imagine the distribution of offspring instead of being a Gaussian. Like, it's not quite Gaussian because like, it's narrower. But in any case, the distribution, it's a symmetrical distribution um, around the parents' mid-parent values. Well, what you would do is it would skew it towards one particular direction. For IQ, it would skew it towards higher values. Mm-hmm. For height, you would also probably skew towards higher values. Um, I think, you know, height and IQ are the two quantitative traits that I can think of immediately people would skew towards higher values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and height is very important for, um, you know, sperm, sperm uh, I believe sperm banks, um, Height is at a premium, so yeah, that's the thing that would change. Apparently, women care a lot about height in their male partners. So, yeah, the ideal preference is about six six inches difference. Although they don't usually realize that, but that's like the target. <laughs> and you think so. this by twenty twenty, this is going to be possible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a, that's a, that's a mid range estimate right now, and I'm saying this based on things I know. Um, you will, I mean, I'll tell you, reader, re, uh, listeners, right now. Like, I mean. You know, before this season, before the spring is over, um, our understanding of the genomic heritability of intelligence 
will increase by an order of magnitude. And that's amazing. If, if this is done on a wide scale, this would be one of the greatest accomplishments in human history. I mean, if we could, you know, rely, greatly reduce the number of people with an IQ below 100 and, you know, add a half a standard deviation to even smart people's IQ, that's, that's going to be amazing for what we can do. There's a lot of economic issues like, you know, worrying about a social security crisis, worrying about economic growth that just get solved or get a lot better if the next generation is a lot smarter than our current one. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, it's going to have to do with wide, widespread adoption, um, you know, we're gonna, but yes, if you're talking in generations, this seems like it's totally a doable thing um, with embryo selection and uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis techniques. I mean, we could really brute force it if we wanted to in the very near future. And in the very near future, I'm talking about on a shorter time scale, perhaps, than widespread adoption of of electric cars, right? Yeah. We're just like thinking like, you know, the 2020s, mm -hmm. um, it could be doable. But I mean, the reality is, I think like economically, it probably would not be feasible for most of the world's population or even most of the American population. So you'd, you'd see some issues going on there. And also with all these sorts of different biological interventions at every stage, there is a likelihood of introducing, you know, random errors or, you know, issues, damage that we can't foresee. So, you know, be a little bit cautious here. Um, I do think, I will tell your listeners, I do think um, we, bef before this generation shall pass, like, I suspect we will have cured or at least been able to prevent Mendelian disease, like, you know, which affects a fair, a fair number of people um, that you would not know, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, it affects a fair number of people. People in the United States don't talk about it because life insurance and health insurance and all these anxieties, and it's just kind of like they take medication for various things. But, you know, a substantial minority of the population has a Mendelian disease. Some of them are really, really deleterious, like cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them are just, you know, things that people are maintaining, and maybe it reduces their life expectancy by five years, and they have to pay an extra copay every month. But um, it's going to be in a utility, a utility game there. Yeah it'll, yeah, it'll be amazing. Um, I have a feeling once a few countries start to do it, there's going to be enormous competitive pressure for all the rich countries to try to do it. I mean, we can imagine if Singapore were doing this and it seemed to be working, a lot of Americans would feel that we would have to. And certainly if China started to do it among its elite, the United States would certainly probably feel obligated to do this as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you can imagine that there's some sort of uh, arms race going on. That I mean, this is like future projection. I don't know. And, you know, I'm focusing at this point on the science. Like that's exciting enough as it is, right? Mm -hmm. But um, you know, quantitative genomics this area is expanding. All sorts of complex traits, quantitative traits, diseases, you know, things like intelligence, behavioral traits. I mean, you know, they will be solved. Um, you know, there's research in the pipeline that you know will be published in high impact journals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people have hinted at this. They've you know assumed it. They've believed it, but uh, you know, I've been in this game in terms of observing this field for half a generation now. And believe, I mean, strange to even say that. Well, maybe more than a half a generation, but um, things are changing. Uh, we're finally at that point along the uh, along the exponential curve where uh, you know the truth is going to be slamming us in the face, and uh, yeah. the deniers are well, they're going to do what they always do. So we'll yeah. see. But I have a feeling if they're rich liberals, they're still going to be using this on their kids if most of their friends are. That's a fair point. Revealed preferences are – revealed preferences do dictate history at the end of the day. I mean, yeah, you can – you know, if, just like if you're, you're 
you know, you, you believe in public schools, but your public school is terrible. If you have the money to send your kid to a private school, you'll almost certainly do it regardless of your political beliefs. Sure, sure. Yes. And, and this is all before we're doing gene editing with things like CRISPR. How long uh -huh. do you think it will be before we can start to edit genes and we could not have to take just the best of the parents, but we can pick the genes of our kids? Yeah, or um, so this is like going further afield than my, than, than my knowledge set, but I will say my understanding is a lot of the issues with CRISPR with humans um, is uh, delivery. Like, okay, like what kind of vectors are you using to get these editors into enough cells that it makes a difference? If you have an embryo, uh, you know, if you have, like, very early blastocyst, you know, you know, not that many cells, it's not a major issue. Now, let's say you want to cure someone who's an adult with cystic fibrosis. Um, you can imagine in the future the goal will be to infect enough, trans maybe with a viral vector, I don't know. Or um, there could be some nano nano machines, who knows, you know? But something that basically gets into enough of their lung tissue to re-edit their lung tissue and fix it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then if you have 10 to 20% lung function, that's actually, I mean, you're never going to become Lance, okay, Lance Armstrong was enhanced, okay? You're never going to become a, uh, like a high-caliber athlete or run marathons, but you will be able to live a fine life. There's a lot of um, bodily functions and physiology where you don't need 100% uh, efficiency, where you just need enough efficiency to maintain um, your base basal state or your base rate. So um, there's things like that which I think will be solved by um, by CRISPR. But the question here is always delivery. Like, are you how are you going to deliver it to enough cells in an adult? Mm -hmm. um, for embryos, it'll be easier. CRISPR is getting better and better and better and better. CRISPR is getting, I mean, so I will tell you, I have been commissioned to write an article about CRISPR for a. Uh, um, a, a well-known national magazine, and um, part of the reason that it hasn't gotten published is like I just have gone back to the editors and have told them, you know, while we were going through this process, the technology has changed and gotten better, and I need to read up. Oh, so yeah, within six months, within six months, there's multiple times I've just been like, I need to read up. So, do you have an estimate for when you think it'll possible be possible to use CRISPR on embryos? Oh, I mean, CRISPR on embryos, I think five five years easily. I think embryos will be relatively easy. Um, now, the question is off-target effects, like how is it going to like cause issues? I think that will probably be taken care of by that. So the key with any these genetic engineering techniques is, uh, I guess there's two issues. Um, the, the, the easiest issue to think of is, okay, well, you want to target this gene, but you target another gene and you knock something out by mistake. And, you know, obviously you just, like, hose the whole system. Well, CRISPR is getting better and better and better um, at not having these errors. So, like, you know, when you have, like, mission-critical systems, mission-critical computer systems, you don't want them to go blue screen, right? right. You want CRISPR to be that good. Um, it was going blue screen all the time a couple of years ago. But CRISPR literally burst on the scene three years ago now. I mean, just... It's like a supernova. It's an explosion. When I when I started, you know, focusing on genetics, obviously it was like not even known. But even at the beginning of grad school in the early in 2012, 2011, CRISPR was not part of the repertoire, the toolkit. Now many labs have just abandoned other genetic engineering techniques and just gone straight to CRISPR. And this is all within three years, and it's getting so good that um, the off-target effects 
are probably not going to be a major issue. The other issue will be, okay, like, well, what about unintended consequences? You're tweaking all these sorts of genes. There's all these sorts of network interconnections, you know. I don't really think it's that big of a... I don't think it's going to be as big of a deal as people anticipate. So uh, with embryos, I think, again, 2020 is probably reasonable. And, uh, yeah, I think I think CRISPR plus genomics, it's going to be an interesting decade. Couldn't CRISPR give us something because, like, kids, like, 10, 20 standard deviations above our, the norm in intelligence? I don't know what that means, but... Um, well, smarter than have ever... Ex- children who are smarter than have ever existed? Yeah, I haven't thought about it in terms of, like, the physiology or just, like, the biophysics of what that would mean. Um, basically, could it turn us all into... Let's not talk about, like, that have ever existed. What if a substantial proportion of the world's population was as intelligent as John von Neumann? Mm-hmm. Um. I'm actually a little scared because uh, well, I wanted to first strike attack on the Soviet Union before they- uh, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. my understanding of John von Neumann is um, the vast majority of the top level physicists and mathematicians that met him. Uh, they spoke as if they were spe- as if they had encountered a God, like his ability to, um, you know, engage in cognition was just so far beyond what they could uh, comprehend. So, I mean, forget, you know, he worked on, one of his many things was game theory. He worked with Oscar Morgan Stern, you yeah, know, you're yeah, an economist, yeah. I'm sure you know about that. And, you know, Morgan Stern is like an accomplished, I mean, he's an accomplished academic, but, I mean, for Von Neumann, this was a side thing that he did, you know, very casually, and then he moved on to all the other things that he was doing. For Morgan Stern, you know, he made a whole career out of it, just shows you what could be a whole career for someone else, for Von Neumann, could be just a casual dabble. Um, so, you know, if we had a world of annoyments, I don't know what we would do. Uh, I mean, that's that's your job to think about it, James. I mean, really, like, it's beyond my ken. And so by 2030, we we could be reliably birthing babies that have von Neumann-level intelligence, or at least more than half of them would. Is that, you're saying that's plausible? It's plausible. I'm not sure if it's probable. Not sure if it's probable. Yeah, but it's plausible. I mean, it's hard because there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stochastic variance uh, in this sort of innovation. So if I had this conversation with you in 2011, I would have been much more conservative about everything because quantitative genomics had not advanced nearly as far as that it has, and CRISPR was not known. Mm-hmm. You know, so who knows what what uh, might be happening in the near future? I don't know, but uh, just knowing what I know now. It's plausible uh, if a national government wanted to get behind this sort of thing, um, maybe it could be probable, you know? I mean, it would seem that they, some would. Uh, I mean, this seems like there's such amazing potential. Yeah. That, uh, is yeah. there a lot of money in this? Are there venture capitalists putting money into fertility clinics, hoping in, you know, 2020 to start yeah, not, 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 not the specific project. Uh, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of like genetic engineering, CRISPR-related um, startups. The issue is, this is controversial, and um, you know, venture capitalists, even the richest, uh, try to stay away from controversial things. I know this a little bit. Like, I can't talk about the details, but you know, in terms of funding controversial research, there are relatively famous people with billions of dollars who have shied away from it because they were scared of. I don't know what. I mean, 
the perception to their reputation, you know. Yeah. So even billionaires are not immune to the sort of social conformity. Yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. true. Although certainly the government of China, if it wanted to, it wouldn't care about whether. Yes. Yes. <laughs> social context matters. Social context matters, and the social context in China might be different than the social context in the United States. So, I almost wonder if. if China were planning on doing this. They might want to try to keep it secret for as long as possible to get a big advantage. They might want to, like, you know, raise, get thousands of kids that are super geniuses and raise them secretly. That way, it would take a long time for the U.S. to catch up. Sounds like we got you got the plot of a science fiction novel right there, but um, yeah. not not a fantastic science fiction novel, but you know, one that could be very realistic. Um, are the Chinese – are there a lot of people who are Chinese who are world-class in, in this field? Uh, I don't know about world-class. I think they're going to get there. They pushed the boundary with, with CRISPR embryos uh, last year, um, and so they want to be there. Yes, they want to be there. There are a lot of people who are Chinese who are working in this field. Whether they're world-class, that's a different issue. Uh, the Chinese science system – I'm going to be honest, at least in the fields that I know, like a lot of it goes for quantity over quality. And, you know, that's going to cause an issue uh, with basic science because you can't just reproduce. Mm -hmm. You have to generate innovation in this complex social system. And there's a coordination problem going on there. But, I mean, I think they'll get it fixed. I think they'll brute force a lot of things. Um, and I think they're going to pressure the West or developed countries in general um, outside of China into going – towards a certain direction. They've already done that with CRISPR and these other various technologies where, you know, the usual hand ringers have had to move really fast to figure out what to do with this technology just because the Chinese have already started doing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, fear of falling behind is a big motivator. Yeah. Especially with the United States, we perceive ourselves as the smartest and most powerful, wisest. If, you know, the Chinese can suddenly birth a whole bunch of geniuses and we're not doing that. Yeah, surrender yeah. our place to them. Yeah. Um, so, I'm, why isn't this a bigger deal? I mean, is it is there something weird with our brains that causes us to think this is like an amazing, important development? Why isn't why aren't like half the stories in the New York Times talking about the inevitable consequences or the probable consequences of genetic engineering? Because really, they there would not be they would all be the same. The articles would all be the same. It's it's the early days yet. Um, we're still we're still we're not quite in the exponential stages of the engineering part. I think we're like further up the curve on the genomics part. So um, you know it's just getting the engineering right, the engineering and the technology to feed into the science and the science. You know, there's there's things like ethical you know constraints. I know mammalian CRISPR, for example, in the United States has some issues just because people are scared of playing God with animals, you know? Um, it's it's a lot easier um, with plants, for example. Uh, you know, a lot, so it's, it's ethics. You know, people don't want to touch it. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Uh, that's basically what's going on. Mm -hmm. Fear. Fear, okay. <laughs> that's too bad. So is it likely that we'll try to develop very smart animals before we try to develop smart people that will experiment with <laughs> octopuses or monkeys or birds? Uh, I think it might go the other way. You do? You... Uh, for, uh, I think we might actually try to – the Chinese and other groups uh, – I have already talked to people um, in Silicon Valley. I mean this is more speculative. They're not investing in it, but um, you know, people at places like Google 
Um, I have had discussions where we could imagine, for example, designing um, uh, a meat animal that cannot feel pain. Oh, okay. Or a meat meat animal that does not have any emotional uh, emotional connection with other animals. So uh, making something dumb is relatively easy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know we might be able to create animals that they don't nece- not necessarily want us to eat them, but the ethical uh, issues that many people would have would be diminished. That was like, I think in the restaurant at the end of the universe, there was a cow yes. that came to a table and said, please eat me. Yes, yes, so We could exactly. create those cows. Exactly. So I think we might see some re-engineering, some simplification, because uh, all we need for a lot of ground beef are just quantity. Mm-hmm. So you don't need much of a brain. You don't need um, you know something that can have uh, relationships and connections with other organisms. So I can see people... And like also, like we control their environment. You don't really need necessarily... Um, to feel too much pain because hopefully you're not running around and, you know. Yeah, yeah it would be useful yeah. for a lot of people. If we could eliminate pain in animals, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are in chronic pain that would love to use CRISPR on themselves to get rid of that pain. Or to yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, if you want to Google it, uh, there's, I think it's like uh, TRPV1. It's a pain gene. And some people, there are, there are people who have mutations. They can't feel pain. Often these children die very early. Because they injure themselves. They often have a lot of broken bones. Yeah, I could see that. But of course, if you have cancer, I'm sure it's worth having. I'm knocking out that gene yes. so you don't feel pain. Yeah. And as and as an adult, you, you know, hopefully you've had enough feedback, you know how to behave. Yeah. And I can certainly imagine if enough people had that, we could be wearing machines that had sensors on them most of the time. And you'd hear a beep and that meant you should worry about your foot or something. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, how much is political correctness like infecting this field are, are a lot of scientists who are looking at the genetics of intelligence like oh we'd like to publish this but we will shade it a little bit so we don't get we can't get attacked uh well so most researchers most biologists i know are not super interested in it um they have a lot of other interests there are some who are interested in it um then there are some who are very opposed to it for ideological reasons uh, most scientists don't want to get in trouble uh, with their funders, and they don't want to be perceived as bad people. Yes, yes. Um, I will tell you, um, in terms of genetics of intelligence, there's issues with group differences and all these things that are very uh, politically sensitive. Uh, I'm just going to be honest and tell you that, you know, privately, many more biologists that I have, like, you know, people know what my opinions are. I do not lie, which <laughs> is a problem sometimes. Uh, but uh, they're much more open to these sorts of possibilities than they would ever admit because they don't want to get fired or censured. They don't want what happened to me to happen to them, right? They're never going to fund this research. But um, privately, um, you know, they're not necessarily as skeptical as some people might think. Um, It's not something that they've given a lot of thought to. Now, there are researchers who are investigating this. Uh, They are brave people. Um, I wish them the best. Uh, But, uh, you know, they're brave people, and they are up against... Others who uh, have very strong ideological viewpoints, some within science, uh, who, I mean, you know, they make accusations against them, but they also try to destroy their career. So, you know, there's an aspect of this which is rough and tumble. I would say most scientists are bystanders. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't put much, most biologists that I know don't think too much about it. Uh, They don't, you know, give it much consideration. Uh, there's a battle going on that they're actually just totally ignoring or avoiding. 
Um, some of them worry that it's going to blow up and then it's going to make biology look bad. You know, my attitude is, you know, ideology is what it is, but, you know, I have perhaps a faith that ultimately you can't dodge the truth. The truth is dogged. It will, it will find you. you oh, know? let's hope. So, um, do you, can you tell my listeners what, what did happen to you? How did you get in trouble over this? Yeah, so um, basically what happened uh, was pretty straightforward. Um, I had written a couple of articles that were um, well-reviewed, and I was um, listed as, you know, internally as a candidate for a periodic column. And um, it turned out, I mean, I have like, I think, like it's I have like five five. It's for a column at the New York Times, right? Yeah, the New York Times. So I had already written a couple of articles for them or pieces for them. And uh, basically what had happened was uh, um, I had like too much of a uh, footprint. I had said too many things and, uh, you know, I had crossed some lines that you are not supposed to cross. And so, you know, they could not uh, defend me. Um, and honestly, I was kind of okay with it because I'm not going to just pretend I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a lot of things going on in my life. So, I was not aspiring to be a – that kind of fell in my lap. Okay. So you didn't expect it and you weren't disappointed when you lost it. But it's still a warning to people who do want to write for the New York Times or write for a prestigious yeah, mainstream, yeah. mainstream paper. You I was disappointed. Article. I have like, you know, I have – I think I have things to say, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone does. But the reality is on the scale of, of my life, it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just – I'm juggling a lot of things. And that was one thing that just kind of, okay, I have to juggle this now. I have to write an article for the New York Times, you know? So, okay, that's fine. But um, it wasn't, frankly, that much money. And uh, it wasn't, like, something I ever aspired to. But, I mean, it was disappointing. It is cautionary. Um, Reality is I have a clean conscience because I just say what I think is true. Yeah. That's the reason I love reading your blog. Uh, So... Um, you are you thinking of having a career in academia? Academia after you get your PhD? Ah, uh, seems unlikely. Uh, you know, just like the political, political aspect of it. But who knows? Who knows? I don't know. It just depends. I'm still trying to publish some first author papers, working on stuff, juggling everything. But um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the reality is, is you know, you're an economist, so you know this. You know, the private sector doing something that's not high profile, like it can be quite remunerative, right? Yeah. Uh, you can make a lot of money, so I mean, why bother? I mean, I put in, I put in many years, you know, on the internet, just speaking and speaking out and saying things. So I mean, I don't feel like I'm shirking any responsibility. I put, I put, you know, I put the years in. Right. It's other people's job now. You know, reality is. I mean, sometimes I think that. I'm not saying I'm necessarily going to fade away, but in terms of my priorities, you know, like Icarus, I maybe went a little too high. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, that's what happened. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not, like, seething with it. It, To me, it was, like, a natural process. Like, the social environment, the social climate is the way it is. But what what matters to you as a scholar? The truth, right? So if you say the truth that you think is the truth, not just because of what other people say is the truth, but what you actually say, you know, you can look at yourself and be like, oh, that's great. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of it. So I don't really care too much frankly, at the end of the day, what other people think as much as how I understand how the world works and where it's going. And I suspect a lot of your listeners understand where I'm coming from there. But I mean, 
maybe it's not as understandable to the broader public where social norms and conformity, you know, give people a lot of meaning. For me, it doesn't really, I don't really have that much meaning from that. It's not super interesting to me. I've never been much of a conformist, but uh, I have like tried to seek the truth. Um, you know, reality is that you're imperfect, you know, like you're have this algorithm that's like searching the space and you're stabilizing on, you know, false positions occasionally, but just, you just, just keep searching around and I don't really limit myself based on social norms or considerations. And that's a problem today. Yeah. Especially if you don't, you don't know what the truth is and you're just exploring different ideas and you talk about different ideas with experts, boy, people can get really mad at you. Even if you say, but couldn't this be it like this? And they'll yeah. get people really hating on you for doing that. Yep. Yep. And as you, as you know, you've, you've observed yourself as well. So, uh, I mean, what can you do? Um, ultimately just have, have, uh, some confidence that reality serves as the ultimate check. Um, until then, uh, just kind of muddle away, just keep trying to do your own thing, be happy in your own life. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm still like around to contribute to the public discussion. Obviously I haven't disappeared, but, uh, just kind of shows you the limitations of, uh, of the discourse. I mean, because the reality is I was not going to write about anything that was controversial necessarily for the New York times in the way that I was problematic. Mm -hmm. It was just that I had other opinions or thoughts that I had put out there. So you triggered the, the disgust response of some social justice people. And that was enough to get you not hyped. Yeah. Yeah. Normally I, I don't really care because I'm not one of them. So social justice people have a particular way where they have a script where especially if someone's liberal or respectable they start to like kowtow to them and i don't i'm just <laughs> i don't kowtow so you know they they don't know how to react to that it enrages them as far as the new york times you know they are relatively respectable frankly yes. I think there's good people there there are people i don't necessarily respect you know there's all sorts there it's a great institution i didn't have a problem really i mean obviously i would have liked to be treated differently but I wasn't surprised. Mm -hmm. I told them I wasn't surprised. Um, you know, it's just that this is the, this is the way the world is. I'm relatively, the world disappoints me, <laughs> you know, but it is the way it is. So yeah. I, I'm not going to like make a big stink about, Oh my God, I can't believe that all these people are very emotional and irrational. Mm -hmm. That's just reality. Yes. That's, that's... And you know, I, th I think it was great that I actually got in there in the first place. Um, you know, before, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like that was surprising to many people, including me. <laughs> well, and you got more publicity because of that. So you probably have more readers to your blog and to your Twitter account yeah. because you were considered. Probably, probably. That's probably it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I think I've taken up enough of your time. I really appreciate you, uh, you, um, letting me interview you and, and hearing about that we might get embryo selection by 2020. That's extraordinarily fascinating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take it easy, James. Uh, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.